1: Welcome to today's episode of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I'm your host, Ian Fisher, and we're recording today's show on Thursday, September 6th. Even the latest starting schools are back in session by now, and with the transition has come a whole host of new questions and challenges for families to troubleshoot. We're glad to have you here with us for what I hope will be a terrific show. In our final segment today, we'll tell you where you can get help filling out the FAFSA, that all-important free form for federal financial aid. The FAFSA goes live on October 1st this year, and we want to give you a head start on filling it out. We'll also spend our office hours today talking about demonstrated interest, which I think is still one of the more confusing pieces of the college application process. We'll discuss whether this is something you should care about at all, uh, and if you should, how to go ahead and maximize it. But first, I'm thrilled to welcome one of my very best friends in the whole world to our show, the multi-talented Olivia Mackey. Welcome to the show, Olivia.
2: Hi, Ian. I loved that introduction.
1: Oh, fantastic. (laughs) I'm glad to hear. I didn't know what title to give you. I was like, she's, let's see, she's an influencer. She's a small business owner. She's a creative. You got all these really wonderful things on your resume, but there's also, for me, no clear title. How do you refer to yourself?
2: Well, I really like the best friend in the whole wide world. I think maybe that should go on my business
1: card. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, go ahead and put that there. Um, cool. I'm I'm okay with that. You can refer to me. Um, folks, I, I hope you'll bear with us. Olivia and I are just going to spend 15 minutes talking with each other, uh, and uh, we're very good friends. So, um, yeah, enjoy. Um, <laughs> no, uh, this is sort of the, the purpose of our session today is to talk a little bit about what you can do with a humanities degree, which is one of the questions that I get most often from families that are considering a liberal arts college, or maybe you've got a student who's interested in, in English, um, who's interested in history, who's interested in philosophy, like what I studied. Um, and you, I think, are a really wonderful example of a variety of different directions that you can go after a degree. So we're going to spend some time talking about your college experience and your post-college experience, if that's okay with you.
2: That sounds great. I'd love to.
1: Fantastic. So I want to go back to the moment in time at Reed uh, where we were friends um, at Reed and, and you at some point had to choose your major. So we don't need to go all the way back to choosing Reed, but I'm really interested in the thought process that you went through when you were thinking about what you wanted to actually major in. Um, and maybe you can share a little bit about what your your area of study was and what your thinking was as you identified that.
2: Yeah, Absolutely. Um, so when I first got to read, um, which is where we went to college together, I initially was going to be a studio major. Did you know that, Ian? I
1: didn't know that. A studio art major?
2: Yeah, studio art major. Um, and when I was thinking about getting into college and where I wanted to go to college, it was a difficult decision for me because there was a while where I was really thinking about going to art school and mm. had to make the decision between choosing a small liberal art school or going to an actual art school um and ultimately decided to go to read um, versus going to an art school. Um, mm. thinking that I would just go to a more of a traditional college setting versus an art school setting and then focus on studio art while I was there.
1: What Little did I know your, how
2: that was going to change in my first year.
1: <laughs> yeah. What would your what would your medium have been um, for art? I mean what was the was area an oil, that you were oil subs-
2: painter. Cool. Yeah, oil painting. And I actually and, did um when I was in high school, I did a summer program at RISD in oil painting and um, did a lot of studio time in, in high school as well. And that was really my my focus and my identity um, in my in my teenage years.
1: Okay. And And Reed has a pretty small studio art department, only about, I think, four or five students major in studio art each year. They always have a really great gallery show at the end of that process. So you can be a studio art major at Reed, but you ultimately decided to move dramatically from a studio art major to an art history major. Big difference there. Um, but why did you make that <laughs> shift? Why did you move over to art history instead of uh, creating the art?
2: Yeah, that's a great uh, great question. Um, I think for me, when I was going through the process of trying to decide what my major would be, it was a lot of thinking about what I wanted to do beyond college. I think that's you know pretty common for... College students to think about. Okay, if I'm going to, I'm going to focus my studies in this, what do I want to do after I graduate? Mm-hmm. What do I think my career path will be in the next, you know, four, five, six years, maybe twenty years? Um, and long story short is I, I didn't know what I wanted to do after college. Um Surprise. And I was in a, a very privileged position of, um, you know, speaking with my dad, trying to figure out what my major would be and him just encouraging me to focus my studies on things that I found interesting. Um, And I studied art history in high school. I did an AP art history class. And um, as part of being an art studio major, you have to take art history classes as well. Um, And I just found myself enjoying the art history classes more than anything else that I was taking.
1: So you followed that enjoyment. You decided that you were going to major in something that you really liked.
2: Yeah, I decided to major in something that I really um, had a passion for, and that I enjoyed showing up to class for, and that I enjoyed being able to um, study and have discourse and um, and just really spend time thinking about the history of art.
1: And of course, if you know, as a student at Reed, you took art history classes, you did studio art classes, but you also Had to do a year of science. You had to do some courses in the humanities. You had the sort of distribution requirements Mm -hmm. across the liberal arts program that rounded out your education. Um, Are those things that you feel like you know, continue to contribute to the work that you do today? Um, How do you see influence of your sort of college education on, and I guess we're not, we haven't talked yet exactly about what you do now, um, and we'll get there, but do you feel like there's a connection between the courses that you did and the work that you do now?
2: Yes and no. Um, I think some of the topics that I spent a lot of time reading and writing about don't come into direct uh, contact with my day-to-day work, right? So I'm not. I don't. Sure. We'll talk about this later. But I don't work in a museum or a gallery. <laughs> right. Um, but I will say that the skills that I learned at Reed, I use absolutely every day. So that's um, writing, uh, critical thinking, the ability to have meaningful discourse with coworkers, those social interactions that you have in college, and then um, the requirements that are placed on students, develop a skill set that I feel like I use absolutely every single day.
1: Right. So it's, and it's harder to identify because those are things that we typically think of as soft skills. Um, the kinds of things that I do on the radio show here, you know, I studied philosophy and I'm not really invoking Kant or Nietzsche when I'm having a conversation with you but I am asking questions and that's a fundamental aspect of philosophy and it's what I'm able to do on this radio show or when I'm working with students on their college essays but it's harder to sort of say I went to college to learn how to ask questions rather than just saying I studied philosophy or in your case I studied art history so you get some really wonderful skills as a background through the growth of your four-year program but it's not always directly connected to that major Um, so you graduated which was fantastic congratulations again on that Um, (laughs) I did it in four years you did it in four years which is great Um, and it's hard it's hard to graduate at Reed but when you finished were you in that position where you had a sense of what you wanted to do what can you sort of put yourself back in your shoes in May of 2011 um, and kind of think about okay what did I what was my next step how did I decide what what was going to come next
2: Yeah, so when I was in college and and studying art history, I did um, some pretty standard, you know, internships at galleries and um, got familiar with the, you know, definitely the art scene in Portland, but also familiar with the art scene at large in the United States. And um, I quickly identified that that wasn't exactly what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. Um, I wanted to be in a different type of work environment than that, not to speak poorly of galleries or, or museums, but that just wasn't, that wasn't the right fit for me. Um, mm. and Ian, do you remember, um, in, in college how I worked with outside in that homeless shelter and yeah. worked for their youth job, their youth, um, job training program at Virginia yeah. Woof. That's, right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I, um, it's a great so outside in is a nonprofit in Portland. They do amazing work, um, and I love. I worked with them for a couple of years and absolutely loved it. And I worked all through college, so I would work. Um, you know, I would get out of class and I would go to work, and um, also worked full time over the summers with them, and you know to to pay my rent, et cetera. Um, and I got to this point where I liked going to work more than I liked going to school. As silly as that sounds, um, because I wanted to be around people, and I love. Yeah the sense of accomplishment at the end of the day. Um, I I just, I loved working. And so I knew when I graduated that I wanted to be in an environment where I was working with a lot of different types of people and that there Hmm. was a sense of um, social purpose in what I was doing because I really believed in the mission of Outside In. Um, And I didn't know much beyond that. (laughs)
1: Well, but I think you—I you, don't think you can understate the importance of that work experience, that outside experience that you had while you were in college. So you've held up these two things. You did um, work for a nonprofit, but you also did internships with galleries and got a sense of what the art world looked like. And those two things were exploratory for you. So even though they had value in the fact that you were able to pay your rent, they also showed you. I actually don't want to be a part of the art world at large after I graduate. What I really like are these aspects of a work environment. And I think a lot of students undervalue those kinds of experiences in the way that they can expose them to opportunities. And I'll tell students, go do an internship, Mm -hmm. try something out, do an informational interview with somebody, volunteer somewhere. And it's not just about getting those hours or getting paid. It's also about learning what you like and what you're good at. Um, and it's it's really encouraging to hear you sort of reflecting on that and say, you know, I really learned a lot about what my work persona is and what I need in order to feel satisfied professionally. Um,
2: Absolutely, and it also for me showed that I wasn't continue. I wasn't interested in continuing in academia. Mm-hmm. Um, which I know, especially at Reed College, I mean, I'm, I'm one of the few graduates from my year that didn't go on to get a further degree. Right. Um, but that was really important for me to know that about myself, that um, the four-year degree was going to be enough and that I was ready to leap into the workforce.
1: And so you did. You leapt into the workforce you decided to leave us in Portland and just on a whim, basically <laughs> moved down to the Bay area uh, with every confidence that it was going to work out. I remember you're just sort of like, I'm just going to go and see what happens. Um, and you had an idea about a job you were going to get, um, but didn't have it locked up, but you had this confidence that you were going to make it work because you have that work ethic and your ab- ability to follow through on things. So you sort of found by right and 18 reasons and, Do you want to talk a little bit about about the sort of integration of food all of a sudden into your experience um, and your professional life?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I landed down in in San Francisco a couple months after I graduated. And though you you made it sound like I was very brave with my giant leap of faith, I did have uh, my brother and my sister living here at the time who uh, allowed me to move in with them and helped me get my first job. So wasn't sure it wasn't as fearless as um as you may be hey, work, found working so those informal that. networks is also
1: <laughs> important right there's there are skills associated with that you know keeping those relationships going but yes i'm I'm sorry I was trying to give you too much credit thanks for pulling me back
2: <laughs> um so i yes yeah, so i landed in san francisco and my first job was actually working as a baker at the Byrite creamery which is um Locally, and I think somewhat nationally famous for their ice creams, um, really delicious. But I was baking cakes and cookies, and um, was just you know working in a kitchen. And um, and associated with the with Buy Right Market and their creamery is a, a nonprofit arm called 18 Reasons, um, which is a community space that was dedicated to food education, so like cooking classes and wine dinners with producers and bringing farmers in for lectures, Um, and they also had a gallery space. So there was a rotating gallery exhibition that was happening, Um, and I just fell in love with the space and the woman who was running it, Rosie, who ended up being a mentor for me. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I would bake during the days, and then I would get off of work, and I would volunteer at 18 Reasons at night. Um, It was just the the same feeling that I had of being surrounded by people and working towards a common goal that I had at Outside In. I found that same community and working towards a common goal at 18 Reasons. Um, And though the missions were different, so Outside In is trying to, you know, solve the homelessness crisis in Portland. 18 Reasons is trying to talk about food justice issues. Um, and creating home cooks and inspiring people to learn how to feed themselves in a healthy manner. And so there was this social justice mission that I really aligned myself with.
1: And and what I always love about eighteen reasons is it sort of is the reappearance of art in your story. Uh, you know, you've got art history mm-hmm. all of a sudden. You've got the gallery, and the space was wonderful. It was a beautiful space. You know, one big room where people could come together and dine together. And you were basically got to a point where you were essentially hosting these dinners and connecting with the artists, connecting with the farmers. Um, just having a, your hands in a lot of different aspects of what was happening there, and really developing your own skills. I don't know if that's where you learned how to make those tomato pies um I don't know if that's where you picked up all of these sort of the culinary creativity that you have Um, but you've got you know now you've got your own food blog with your recipes uh your fantastic chef um and this sort of launched you also into sort of working with farmers directly right I mean with Mm -hmm. with local farms in California and beyond
2: Yeah, I mean, at this point in my life is when I just, I fell in love with food um, and working with farmers and farming myself. I spent time working on farms in California and in Vermont um, and just became fully committed to the cause of working in the food movement. Um, Mm -hmm. And it was cooking and it was teaching and it was spreading awareness and it was farming and growing and on all of those things. Um And eighteen reasons was really the catalyst of of that point in my life that really set me off on that path. And um, and you're right, I was surrounded by incredible artwork on the walls uh, every day, um, which was fantastic. And I guess I, I should I should say to the listeners that after volunteering for a while, I eventually was hired at eighteen reasons, so that became my job. I went from, <laughs> yeah, I from volunteer to part time to full time. Um, right. And I would also just say that. You know, there's, there's power in volunteering. And if you are interested in getting into an industry and you want to try it out um, and get your foot in the door, volunteering is an amazing way to do that.
1: Yeah. And I, I love that advice. And I, I think I think that's important, whether you're already working full time and want to volunteer or if that's a way that you're looking to get connected with a particular area. But your, your story is often about sort of using that volunteer experience to just show that you're talented and then use that talent to sort of get a, a professional job. Um, so, mm-hmm. Liv, we're a little bit uh, we're close to the end of our time here, but I don't want to go before I you just share a little bit about what you are currently up to. Um and you know, I, I would say that I, I've seen a lot of your sort of creative talents, even in the way that you've launched your podcast that you're now hosting and this new small business that you're doing with your husband Mike. Um I don't know if you want to share a little bit about what you're up to these days.
2: I'd love to. Um so you did reference that I, I am a food blogger, so I do have a, a blog. It's called The Coast Kitchen, um, where I sort of musings and recipes of um, of what's going on in my day-to-day life. And, and I truly just do it for fun as a, um, a creative outlet. But um, right now I'm in the process of starting a cider-focused bar and bottle shop in Oakland, California called Redfield Cider. Um, and you also alluded to our podcast, which is Redfield Radio, where we, myself and my husband, Mike, discuss all things related to fermented beverages, but mostly talk about cider.
1: <laughs> yeah. And it's fantastic. Fantastic stuff. So um, if you are in the Bay Area, if a Bay Area listener, you should get out and check out Redfield when it opens uh, sometime in the next couple of months. And Liv, I promise I'm going to come down and visit you guys within the first couple of months after you guys open up. Um, But I want to thank you for hanging out with me at work again, just like the old days back when I was in the Reed admission office.
2: (laughs) This is great. Thank you so much for having me.
1: And I look forward to seeing you this weekend. Um, Okay, folks, uh, when we come back, we are going to open up our office hours, so don't go away.
0: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
3: Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com
0: You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show.
1: Welcome back to the show. Our office hours are now in session, and we want to take some time today to talk a little bit about demonstrated interest. Now, you can demonstrate interest in anything. And you can do so in a lot of ways. For example, you demonstrate interest in this radio show by tuning in or downloading the show each week. And as an aside, I'm thrilled to share that we crossed the 500,000 hit mark for 2018 just last week. So your interest has actually made our show the third most popular show on the Voice America radio network. And it's because of listeners like you that we keep cranking out these shows each and every week with great advice. Of course, we're not here just to talk about ourselves, but to talk about how you can put forth your best college application. And joining me to discuss the role of demonstrated interest in the college app is my friend from the Windy City, Kira Tyler. Hey, Kira.
4: Hi, Ian. How are you today?
1: I am doing wonderfully. Uh, looking forward to this conversation because if we get a lot of questions about demonstrated interest. I think it's something that still is a little bit fuzzy for a lot of families, whether it matters what it even is, how to measure it. So what is it? We can start pretty broadly for people that are new to the term. What does it mean for a college to track demonstrated interest?
4: Sure. So what it means for a college to track demonstrated interest or university um, is they are trying to sort of um, take notice of when applicants are in touch with them, and that can be, um, aside from just submitting an application, it can be uh, a scheduled visit, it can be attending a high school visit, or an information roadshow, or having an interview, or even at some places they count emails or phone calls. So, that's Mm -hmm. really what demonstrated is, is just sort of tracking ways in which applicants are in touch
1: got you and they do they track whether you're wearing their school colors when you show up for a visit um, <laughs> or give them a high five and you know, probably not that that level of stuff um, they're now, not doing that
4: no 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 they're not doing that gratefully but yeah
1: <laughs> i mean some families think that that's part of what colleges are looking for you know show up in your college t-shirt you know where it, it's it i don't think so 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 why do colleges care about this kind of stuff, What what is the reason that we even discuss demonstrated interest when we talk about college applications?
4: Sure. So I think the sort of the pure reason is that colleges really do want to bring students on their campus who want to be there, right? And so it feels like someone who has invested the time and energy and potentially resources to come and spend time on their campus or attend Um, you know, uh, an information session at their high school then would be someone who truly is interested. Um, The other side of this is a management, an enrollment management tool. So it's a way for um, universities and colleges to say, okay, just want to make sure that uh, it's looking like some of these people that we admitted who seem great are actually, um, there's something in their record with us that says, oh, We'd be excited about it being admitted and seriously consider you. So not to court Hamilton. Uh, it's not throwing away your shot. It's I don't want to throw <laughs> away my admit, essentially.
1: Is it, yeah, it reminds me of almost like the old days in junior high, when you wanted to ask somebody out but before you did that you wanted to ask their friends if they liked you first so you knew what the answer was so it's a little bit of of colleges kind of testing the waters to make sure that students are interested sure now this seems like sort of a high touch enrollment management kind of thing what kinds of schools typically track demonstrated interest where is this something that actually matters in the process
4: right so the real sweet spot would be small to medium-sized schools I would say in general, schools that are over ten, twelve thousand 12,000 people don't really have the bandwidth to do this, Um, and uh, public schools almost overwhelmingly have zero interest in doing this. It just doesn't serve their mission or purpose very well. Um, I do think that there's one exception that in the past couple of years we feel like has been showing that, and that would be the University of Michigan. Um, But in general, it's really going to be small to medium-sized schools, and um, those that are Selective to kind of highly selective without being the most selective. So, for example, MIT is wholly uninterested in um, tracking interest. It just doesn't make sense for them. They're, they just don't feel like it fits into what they're trying to accomplish. I'll be frank, they really don't need to do it either. Right. Um, you know, but other schools. Like where I used to work at Brandeis, we would track interest. So um, I think it's really schools that are still very selective, but maybe not the most selective in the country.
1: Yeah. And, and Reed, we definitely used to track interest, but I know that you know Stanford doesn't track it at all. And, and their assumption is, of course, you're interested. We're Stanford. I mean, we're MIT. Of course, you're interested. We don't need to look at this kind of thing. and exactly. I think a lot of schools have that flexibility, whereas places like Reed, it really is important to know whether a student is interested and whether they they know what the experience is.
4: Sure. Well, if you have a yield rate in the sixties, the seventies, the eighties, you are not going to be doing this. Even like a conservatory, for example, Julia is not tracking interest. They know if we get you, we're getting you. We say, come on in. You're likely to come on in. So I get it. Yes. That's very true. Stanford would fall into that category. Absolutely. But then there are other schools that are like, we need to be, really good about making our numbers and maybe increasing our yield, this makes sense for us. It could also be tied into merit scholarship consideration as well, um, or an opportunity to maybe um, admit a student who's a little outside of the typical admit profile, but who seems to really want to be there. And it's not just that they want to be there, but that they seem to also have the skills to be successful when on campus. So, you know, it's um, there are a lot of reasons for demonstrated interest.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And now now let's say we're in that sweet spot. We're looking at these schools that are small to medium sized. They don't have a super high yield. They can still be pretty selective. They could be hard to get into, certainly. Can you ask them whether they demonstrate interest, uh, whether they track demonstrated interest? And, you know, if you know that they do, what are some ways that you can actually start to demonstrate that interest? You mentioned some at the the top of the show, but what are sort of some conscious choices that students can make to show a college that they really are interested in them?
4: Sure. So some schools... It's- even on their website or in some of their printed material, if anybody looks at that anymore, um, there may be a tell in there, right? They may say an interview is highly recommended. That's an Mm -hmm. obvious sign of a place that is really tracking interest and uh, pretty heavily, to be frank. Um, If they don't say it, um, I think it's fair to ask um, in an easy breezy kind of way. You know, I'm just wondering, um, you know, as I think about the upcoming months and a busy fall, you know, are you, do you guys track interest? Um, And I think most schools will be fairly forthcoming about that. I certainly hope that they will be. Um, And so ways to be able to do that would be um, sort of your typical Uh, Schedule an official campus tour um, and information session, so plan on spending between two and three hours on the campus when the admission office is open. So drive around on a Sunday is not really the same thing as actually focused time um, within an admission office. So there's that. If um, they travel and they're coming to your high school and you can go, that's another way. If you go to a college fair and they're there, that's usually another way. Um, interviews are another way as well. And then some schools, it's more granular to a phone call, an email, participation in a chat session um, online. Those are all other ways to express interest um, if the school has said that they do so.
1: So so now you've mentioned a lot of different things, and right? you probably – 10 different ways that you can connect with a school that you can demonstrate interest. But I think that, you know, sometimes trying to focus on demonstrating interest can go awry. It can, can be over strategic and, and can backfire a little Mm -hmm. bit too. What are some things to avoid when we're thinking about demonstrated interest? Is it always good to show a college that you're interested in them or should you tone it down a little bit from time to time?
4: Yes. So I think the phrase be easy um, would apply here. So I like that. it's you know we <laughs> we don't want this to feel like number one, um, just a blanket approach to the fifteen schools by the way, 15 is too many, but to the sixteen schools that someone might be applying to or eight schools, we, if I'm admission officer A at XYZ school, I don't also want to see that you've written the same email to all of, you know, seven other schools you're applying to. So part of this is, please, let's make this personal, um, you know, so that it feels like this is a genuine question intended for me, the admission officer. If that's not happening, it's a, it's, it's, much worse to do that than to not do it at all. And when I'm speaking with my students, there has to be some sort of genuine... Um, intention behind this. So if it's just to kind of get another check behind your name, I think it's not worth it and has the it, there is opportunity to backfire because it's going to feel empty. So, right. you know, when my students have a genuine question, um, then I would say, you know what, then why don't you go pick up the phone, you yourself, not a parent, or craft an email and see if you can connect with someone or do an online chat with someone. And, you know, as long as it's genuine and there's a real inquiry, behind it, and it's not just, oh, my gosh, 14 days have gone by and I need to make contact, then I think it makes sense. But when people start blanketing schools with uh, uniform emails and, you know, when they're just sort of following up and there's, n- there's nothing behind it, um, then I think that's an opportunity for it to really backfire.
1: Yeah. And, you know, you can, to some degree, you can be annoying uh, to college admission officers. I mean, there are people too, and they've got busy jobs. And, you know, I I remember getting emails from students that had nothing of value, no real personal question in there, nothing about that that demonstrated they knew the institution at all. And it's just sort of like, you know, why do you keep sending me these? Um, And so if you're sort of saying, all right, I've got to demonstrate interest in this college, I think you're asking the wrong question. I think, you know, what you really need to do is say, what are the schools that I'm interested in, and how can I learn more about them? And if you take that approach, right. whether it's a visit or an email to an admission officer or a school visit, you know, they're coming to your school and you want to meet with them, that's probably the best way to start to interact with Agreed. that school and learn more about or
4: you them. That's right. Or, you know, you had an opportunity to meet with someone who did come to your school and you want to just write a quick little thank you saying, "I really appreciated you coming to visit our school. I learned a lot. You know, thanks again. Safe travel on the road." That yeah. is really lovely. It's brief. It doesn't feel self-serving. It feels polite um, and gracious. So I think things like that. But you know, just saying like, "Hey, I joined a new club today," or like, "Oh my God," that's not. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I just yeah, want to update we wanna you that, that I was selected for the National Honors. It's just like, oh my gosh,
4: right. what are you doing?
1: What are you doing? I know,
4: like, I'm, really, I'm thrilled for you, but please go is yeah. annoying, yeah. and that can definitely backfire. And I'm going to be thinking later on, like, oh, this kid really worked my nerves with all of these you know, updates about things that in the end had very little impact on the application. Or I was going to see on the application anyway. So.
1: Right. And I do think that going back to what you had said about the most selective schools, not really tracking demonstrated interest. I think a lot of students are really, you know, they're gunning for those spots. They want to get into those schools. And so they don't want to leave any stones unturned. But you can really shoot yourself in the foot if you, you know, start sending emails to the Stanford rep who's going to read your application every single day. Um, That is not the way to approach the process. Yeah. And and it's really not going to help.
4: You know, when families are planning visits, this is why, you know, and they're so excited to see all these really great places, but places that are among the most challenging to get into, and that's all they're seeing. And I'm like, hold on. I mean, if you're going to go, you know, to the New York City area... Don't just visit Columbia. I mean, you know, yes, do it for your own interest and for your... I mean, this is a big investment to see it, but I just don't want you to make the Ivy round. I mean, you got to see other places, um, both because that's also in your best interest to look at some other schools. But also, these are schools that care more about whether you step on their campus or not. So, I you know, really push this point when I'm working with families and they've just sort of scheduled a road trip of all of the most selective schools who don't care and aren't going to other really terrific places that they may be interested in who do care. They're just leaving them behind. That's Um, right.
1: Yeah. Get over to Brandeis. Don't worry so much about visiting Harvard. Yeah. You know, go see Brandeis. They're going to come see them. Uh, And that doesn't mean that you can't see Harvard, but you know, keep that in mind. Um, there's one other thing that I wanted to ask you. That, you know, I get this question a lot from families. They say we've done the visit. You know, we know that um, you know this student wants to apply ED. It's his first choice. Now they're coming through this fall and uh, doing a workshop um, or hosting an open house. Do we need to go to demonstrate our interest at this point in the process? Um, Should we, you know, cancel soccer practice and go to this event to see this rep? Uh, What do you usually say to families who ask that kind of question?
4: Yeah. So usually I would say, you know what, I feel like they probably already got enough of you. And more importantly, (laughs) you got enough of what you needed to make this decision. And so don't go. It's okay. I mean, and this could really freak people out, because like you had said, it's like, I have to, I have to, I have to. There's a real mania around this. Um, but sometimes the compromise that we make is, you know, for them to simply write a very brief email saying, you know, I, I actually, I'm not going to be able to make this session. Um, you know, I have a prior commitment, but I still feel really excited about the school and my ED application. And, you know, so, um, you know, enjoy your night in Columbus. I think yeah. it's there.
1: Yeah, I think that's a a great way to handle it. And I think it's also important to keep in mind the kinds of experiences that demonstrate significant interest, like visiting campus. And if you go visit a campus and talk to a rep and do an interview, the fact that you say hi at a college fair is really, really insignificant, relatively speaking, because you've already done all those other big things. So you don't really have to go and do that. Um,
4: Okay, so hopefully... I think we can agree, Ian, that those... uh, I'm sorry, that like a college... Like a college roadshow kind of night can be a really chaotic situation. Oh my gosh! Where yeah, I not miss that. Where Everybody's clamoring. Yeah. Um, I know I don't miss that either. And <laughs> so, um, you know, I think if you don't, if you if you've already made your intentions clear and it makes sense for you, you don't need to put yourself in that position
1: no stay home work on your essays let the juniors fight it out stay home that's Go
4: yeah that's right um, Go to bed early. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's right all right thanks a lot kira this has been helpful hopefully we've helped to, to calm some nerves around demonstrated interest today
4: i hope so thanks for having me in
1: folks when we come back we'll help you get some help on filling out that fafsa don't touch the radio dial
0: Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7.
3: If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com
0: You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show.
1: Welcome back to the show. Now, before we get into our finance segment for today, I'd like to share a few interesting facts in today's School Spotlight on Eckerd College. One of the 44 colleges that change lives, Eckerd College is truly a -a one-of-a-kind school. From strengths in marine science and environmental studies to pet-friendly dorm policies, Eckerd provides 1,900 students unparalleled opportunities for academic, social, and emotional growth. Because of its location on the Gulf of Mexico, Eckerd can connect students to amazing research and internship experiences with organizations like the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute and the Florida Institute of Oceanography. And because of the college's 414 calendar system, students can spend winter term on campus pursuing an independent project or off campus in one of 20 plus international programs. Imagine studying natural history in the Galapagos or field archeology span in the Bahamas next January. Looking to take advantage of the amazing weather at Eckerd, the college's waterfront programs supply students with dozens of sailboats, kayaks, canoes, sailboards, and paddleboards for recreational use, all free of charge. Fun fact, students at Eckerd are welcome to bring their family pet to school. Dogs, cats, snakes, birds, and a host of other domesticated animals are permitted to live in designated pet-friendly dorms. Now, I personally really enjoyed... Uh, getting the chance to get to know Eckerd when I was traveling with the colleges that change lives group. It's 44 schools that go around and do college fairs. And I would encourage our listeners who are new to the college search to pick up a copy of the book by Lauren Pope. It's a fantastic introduction to a number of excellent under the radar colleges like Eckerd, like Reed, uh, and there are some terrific options that are out there. Okay, speaking of life-changing, let's talk about paying for college. How about that segue? (laughs) Uh, Joining me to talk about help on the FAFSA is one of our fabulous finance educators and a parent of a pair of college-aged boys, Jan Combs. Welcome to the show, Jan.
5: Thanks, Ian. Happy to be here.
1: So your older son is in college, and your younger son is getting close, right?
5: Yeah, he's a senior this year.
1: All right. So what I love about having you on the show is that you've got that financial aid experts perspective to bring to bear, but you're also a mom who's sort of in the thick of things as well. So it's a, a double dose of expert advice, which is fantastic. So today we're talking about the FAFSA. And if I'm correct, the FAFSA becomes available on October 1st? Correct. Okay, fantastic. And a lot of people need help with this thing. I've heard it being compared to being more painful than filling out your tax returns in many cases. Now, there are some rules around getting help on the FAFSA, right? So if you need assistance, where do you turn? Who do you go to to get some help with that
5: FAFSA? Sure. You know there really is a ton of support systems in place. I want people to know that so that you you know that we're gonna you you have support as you go through the process. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do like to point out that this support is kind of available now, even before you're ready to do the FAFSA, and then of course during the time when you're actually trying to complete that lovely form online. And so um, now. Uh, you know, pre-FAFSA completion time, you can actually go online and get a lot of sources of uh, support now. You can go right to the Federal Student Aid website, which is student aid ed.gov. And there there's a lot of information that you can look at now to really familiarize yourself and prep for the whole process ahead. There will be a PDF of the, the current FAFSA to come at the end of this month. It will become available and you can print it out and look at it. So you can see all of the different questions that you need to answer so you can prepare. There's also frequently asked questions in um, videos on that site as well that you can look at to prep for completing the FAFSA. So that's kind of what you can do now to prepare in advance. Um, and so, thinking ahead once you are going to log into the FAFSA system, and as you said, it's available October 1st, and folks can complete the FAFSA after October 1st of their child's senior year. And when you begin that application, I know it can be a little bit overwhelming, but it's important to know that there's a ton of tools and support services available, you know, if you get stuck. So first off, available, customer service line, there's a handy chat feature, there's also email support, and that's available throughout the site. Um, and this is great. So if you're in the FAFSA application, for example, and you just get stuck, you can call someone, you can email, or you can chat with someone. The neat thing about the FAFSA is you don't need to do it in one sitting. So, for example, if you're mm-hmm. way through and then you have a question, you can simply save it and then go out, chat, email, and, and get your answers to your questions and then go back in and finish it before you submit it. So that's a really handy thing if you want to rely on the customer service folks, you know, at FAFSA.
4: Now, even better I- than
5: that, which I love, is all the different interactive tools within the FAFSA application itself. Mm. And these can prove super helpful. So while you're actually in the application, you can click on the little, I think it's a little blue and white question mark, it's a little icon next to each and every FAFSA question. So there's about 103 questions. If you click on the little question mark, a little box is going to pop up and give you a tip as to what the FAFSA folks are looking for you to include. And if you need to dig a little bit deeper, you can actually click on the More Help link associated with that data element you're trying to put in, and it'll give you even more information. So it really does guide you throughout the application, giving you a handy reference tool for each and every single question and data element throughout the FAFSA. (laughs) And I tell you, this didn't always exist years ago, uh, but now it does, (laughs) and it really does prove to be very helpful.
1: Now, is this something that is directed more towards students or more towards parents? Is this something that a student should get online and work through, or is it really something that the parent should be responsible for?
5: Yeah, so both, actually. I mean, it is a student application for financial aid, but the information contained in that application is both going to be parental and student. So they really Mm. should be sitting down together um, and completing their own sections.
1: Gotcha. Gotcha. I love that advice. And and I think it's it's really helpful for students to be aware of what this cost is going to look like and and to take a role in understanding that. And it might be some challenging conversations for parents to talk about their, their family finances, but those tend to be good conversations, especially if you have them early. Um,
5: now, they are great you, conversations. And like you said, the earlier the better to really manage right. those expectations and cost about the cost factor. Yeah, and talk,
1: it only talk gets about harder as you factor, go. For sure. Yeah. Now, now, what if someone really isn't great at the online stuff or wants more of a face-to-face mm-hmm. support? Um, what are some things that you can do if, if you really want to be talked through uh, some of the, the things you know that, that pop up on the FAFSA?
5: Well, this is where the special FAFSA completion events um, and these are held in every single state around the country, and these can be super helpful to families. Each state will have a specific FAFSA completion event, and all of the events have a sole focus of helping families to really complete that FAFSA. Usually each state will have multiple events at different locations throughout the state, and typically those are going to be held in the fall, November, sometimes late October, November, December, sometimes it's late is early winter January or February. Um, The details, of course, will vary from state to state, but the important thing to know is that each state will offer some sort of FAFSA completion event, and they might be called different things. Um, In California, they call it cash for college. In Massachusetts, we call it FAFSA Day Massachusetts. Um, I've heard it referred to as FAFSA frenzy, FAFSA free-for-all, FAFSA first. Ultimately, though, every state will have some sort of FAFSA day completion event. So folks that are interested that want that face-to-face, Um, And it's terrific. You can go. It might be at a library, a community college. It might be at an educational opportunity center or at a university. They can go in and sit down with someone who's currently practicing financial aid, ask their questions, and complete their FAFSA right in front of, you know, financial aid expert. So folks interested in that. I usually recommend that they check with their higher education authority, also called Department of Education, for FAFSA events in their state. They can also go to their their favorite you know web browser and just put in the phrase FAFSA day or FAFSA completion event, the name of their state, and then 2018 2019, and the events in their state should come up. Um, these are great events. They're super helpful. Um, I think a lot of families want that you know hands on face to face, um, and this is where you can get that type of support.
1: Yeah, and they, they might even be lucky enough to run into some of our college coach educators at those events, right? I mean, I think I think some of our absolutely up to those there are events. many
5: of us out in the field that do volunteer, and I I, I co-chair the um, event here in, in my state. So yeah, absolutely, you might just see a college coach person for sure.
1: Yeah, go ahead and say hello to Jan. Uh, she's she's a, a lot of fun to talk to, as you can tell. <laughs> Please do. Okay, but these are <laughs> these are all <laughs> these are all single date events, though, right? So so there might be, you know, let's say I'm not particularly tech savvy and I can't make those single date events. What are some other things that I can do in case I miss an event in my state?
5: Sure, and that is true. Even though in my state we have 30 different events around the state, you know, if you miss the one in your area on that particular date, you will be out of luck. So absolutely other things are available. Most states also have what's called educational opportunity centers or college planning centers, um, and they're open on a daily basis, usually Monday through Friday. But these centers really do exist to help people. Um, They provide free educational and career advising, and most of them will also provide um, assistance with the FAFSA as well. So again, those will differ from state to state, but the majority will have college planning centers of that kind. Um, there's also the college financial aid office. You know, where your child's supplying, they're happy to help. They want you to complete the FAFSA, and they want you to complete it early and on time. So the college financial aid offices are also a good resource. And of course, let's not forget about the high school guidance department, um, they will have, in many cases, financial aid nights or specific college um, college nights or FAFSA completion events as well located right at the high school. so I always you know remind folks to check with their guidance counselor they're offering these services, and they want you to attend.
1: Are there any sort of pitfalls to avoid as you're looking for help are there are there is there bad advice out there? Are there there websites that you maybe shouldn't pay attention to? What are some signs that you might not be getting the kind of help that you need to get?
5: Sure. I mean, there's definitely private entities out there that will charge folks uh, to complete their FAFSA form. You know, in, in my experience, there is several options out there for free, reputable support services for families. So I feel that between the FAFSA site and all of the interactive tools within the FAFSA site, um, as well as all of these other events that are being held and support services, I feel like families can get what they need without having to pay, um, you know, an outside entity.
1: And it's a good reminder that the first F in FAFSA stands for free. Um, and Free, this exactly. entire this process is intended to help you to get financial support for college, and is not something that should come at a cost for you if if that's something that that you can't afford to do. So, I love the idea that there are so many different resources that are out there and available. And I think we have a segment coming up um, to actually talk through some of the components of the FAFSA. Is that right, Jan?
5: We do, I believe, on October 4th. We're going to have a nice, wonderful radio segment that's going to really focus on how to complete the FAFSA. And so that will dig a little bit deeper into what questions to expect and some of the data you should have on hand to help you um, complete the FAFSA. That will be a super one to tune into as well.
1: That's great. And then I think the week after that, we will be focusing in on the CSS profile, which is a second financial aid form that's required by a lot of uh, private colleges in addition to the FAFSA. So a great pair of segments there on the 4th and the 11th of October to help you sort of move through the process of applying for financial aid. And, And Jan, just for those listeners who maybe are hearing about this stuff for the first time, parents of seniors, what tends to be the deadline for the completion and submission of these forms? in general.
5: Yeah, so you know what, deadlines are going to be all over the place depending on whether it's a private school, whether it's a two-year school, four-year public school. So what I always say to folks is the FAFSA becomes available on October 1st of your child's senior year, as does the CSS profile form, the, the, the additional financial aid form. Because deadlines are all over the place, because there's different admissions timelines, I always encourage folks, try to complete it in the month of October or early in November if you can, and that way you'll be assured of meeting really all of the different varying deadlines that are out there. So don't delay. It becomes available in October, complete it. And then, you know, you cross that off your list and you can move forward with another college task.
1: Perfect. Jan, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and and sharing your wisdom with our listeners. And again, it's great to have somebody who's going through this process right now in addition to being an expert. Mm -hmm. So thanks so much for being on the show.
5: Thanks for having me. Have a nice afternoon.
1: You too. Well, folks, that's all the time that we have for today, and I want to thank my guests Olivia, Olivia, Kira, and Jan. Olivia's going to kill me for that. Uh, for their contributions to today's show, and I want to thank each of you for taking the time to join us here every single week. We've got a terrific fall lined up for you, with segment's planned to cover unique school essay supplements, the UC application, and help on financial aid forms, as we just discussed. If you dig into our archives, you can also find past shows with excellent content on a range of admissions and financial aid topics, and there's useful content even a year or two back that would be really helpful for you. Next week, we'll drop our top five biggest mistakes on the college app, a great segment for you seniors who are gearing up for your fall submissions, and we'll take your listener questions on the air. Until then, enjoy the weekend. Keep attacking your college apps one step at a time. Have a terrific day.